Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Modern CFO Podcast, the first in our new year, 2024, we have a very, very great guest joining us today, Eric Mulheim. Eric, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thank you, Andrew. I'm happy to be here. So Eric is currently the CFO of Mozilla, and we're going to talk all about its corporate structure, the exciting early days of the internet, and now through an AI revolution. But I really want to kick it off to Eric to explain to us some of the early decisions he made, maybe right out of undergrad, that he feels were informative as he sought out his future as a CFO. Yeah, I didn't think about being a CFO when I started my career. It's something that came to me over time. I started out as a math major in college and realized by the time I got to the end of it that I did not want to go into academia. So I was looking for something that I could apply those skills that I had gotten in my undergraduate in a way that was interesting to me. And that sent me to Morgan Stanley, where I worked for about three years, some of it in mergers and acquisitions, doing technology, telecom, and media. I cut my teeth on the acquisition of Macaw Cellular by AT&T. And unlike a lot of analysts, I ended up working on the same transaction for about a year and a half. Uh, then I spent some time on East Coast technology, which was interesting back in 1994. It was not nearly the boom that it is now, although we did see the beginnings of that at that time. That was a great formative experience for me because I really learned the tools and tricks of finance overall, became a very good modeler and spent a lot of time understanding what made a company work from a financial perspective. But I realized pretty quickly that I wanted to work in the corporate world and somebody who was actually using the capital to create something uh, rather than being the intermediary between companies as they looked for, to get capital, whether it was through public market transactions or through private market transactions like M&A. So after business school, that gave me the opportunity to go work at Disney in the strategic planning department. And I was there for about 16 years. And I, it was an interesting period of time because I expand the first half of my career under Michael Eisner and the second half of my career under Bob Iger. So I saw two very distinct periods of the company. First half of the time I spent there in the corporate strategy department, I was working with the film entertainment group. And that was an opportunity to really understand the difference between the strategy process and the budgeting process of the company. We were responsible for putting together the corporate strategic plan. We were responsible for doing mergers and acquisitions. We were responsible for, for providing another point of view on issues inside the company. At the time, a lot of the things that we were talking about were the level of investment we should have in filmed entertainment, according to the actual returns that were available inside the market. We spent a lot of time thinking about how we window movies and what the way to maximize profit from movies in an environment that at the time was hallmarked by uh, the good old home video and Blockbuster as we slowly moved into a world of streaming. After about eight years there, I moved into the consumer products group uh, around the time that Bob Iger came over because I had learned a lot in my corporate strategy role, but wanted to do something that was a little bit closer to the business and more operational. That was fascinating because it sent me on um, a journey into some greenfield new business development started working with the publishing group, which was one of the arms underneath the consumer products group on um, a consulting project on how to optimize a business that we had in licensing our uh, characters and content to companies that made English language learning curricula. And we turned that on its head and said, why don't we actually move into 
the services business, um, helping kids to learn English in China, because that was a big business. And there was uh, both an economic rationale for doing that from a return perspective, and also a rationale for Disney and expanding its business on the ground in China in a time before it had Shanghai Disneyland. So I found myself in 2008, moving to China and taking off the strategy hat and putting on a hat where we were building a business from the ground up called Disney English, where we were leasing, fitting out sites in malls to um, teach kids English as a supplemental education program. And this was highly operational. It was, this was about taking the strategy you would put together and then actually diving into the operational bits and pieces and details that would actually make it work. A very formative experience for me. And honestly, that was the turning point where while I wasn't nominally the CFO of the business, I was functionally the CFO of the business. And I got a real passion for uh, what I would call strategic implementation, where it was, how do you actually take the details of what you're doing and lay those against the strategy in order to figure out how do you get your way to the top of the theoretical mountain or the metaphorical mountain. Did that for about three years, grew this from an idea to a chain that had about 18 centers in Shanghai, Beijing, Tianjin, Hangzhou, before I left in 2010, eventually got to 44 centers before COVID hit and the company re-examined re its priorities. And I came back to the U.S. in 2010. And that's the point at which I realized that my path forward really had to be in that CFO space as a finance-oriented CFO that was really interested in what can I do to help assist the company in implementing a strategy. And so after a couple more years at Disney, when I did some really interesting new product work, I slotted into a path as a CFO of, first of all, an ed tech company where I was for about three and a half years, very small one. A lot of people won't know what it is called Helix Education. Uh, after that, I moved on to a um, ad tech company, uh, a company called OpenX uh, here in Southern California, Pasadena, that focuses uh, on being a supply side programmatic advertising platform, working with advertisers, really cut my teeth on the internet in that job. Um, uh, everything related to massive amounts of data coming in all the time trying to understand the really complex interaction of supply and demand in a two-sided marketplace and constant change. Everything was changing very, very fast during that time. GDPR hit us in the middle of my time there and that threw the company for a loop and we had to learn how to move around that. But that was a lot of really good prep for bringing me to where I am now, Mozilla, where we are facing some of the same challenges on a day-to-day -day basis that we did at OpenX is helpful as we think about diversifying revenue and implementing that. And one of the things I'm excited about is that Mozilla is a very different kind of company. And we have a very unique set of incentives that create a different kind of challenge for a CFO. And that's why I'm excited to be where I am now. That's great. I'm really excited to go into the structure of Mozilla. Before we do move on from early career, one of the things that I personally really enjoy talking about on the podcast is a concept of frameworks, both personal frameworks and business frameworks for decision-making. And it sounds like in even your early career uh, in East Coast, undergrad, West Coast, corporate jobs, and then going to China, you had a lot of exposure to a lot of different cultures and also made a lot of personal choices that brought you into these different types of opportunities, which I'm sure led to a lot of growth. I'm really interested in personal frameworks you use to say, this has been a great experience. I'm prepared for my next and how you think about 
cutting or investing in new projects. From my own standpoint, uh, a couple of the rubrics that I apply include, am I continuing to learn? Am I continuing to create value? One of the things I think that's really interesting about the CFO job is that not every CFO comes in with a perspective, a set of skills that is appropriate for every single job. While we've got what is a fairly fungible set of skills, financial analysis, understanding numbers, being able to tell stories from numbers, being able to provide direction. It's not going to be the case that the particular perspective with which you come in is appropriate for that company at that time. Uh, one of the interesting things as I enter my third year at Mozilla is that I'm now seeing how I build on the things that I've done in the first couple of years here. There have been definite themes in every single year, and every year we are slowly getting closer to what I would consider to be the ideal department that's able to contribute to the growth and success of Mozilla. Thinking, question is how you think about that in um, conjunction with products. And in some ways, uh, this is probably a pretty similar framework to the way we think about diversifying revenue in Mozilla, where the platonic ideal, if you will, of investing is taking informed bets of the right size at the right time with a specific goal in mind. When we look at investing, we're trying to think about this as if we were venture capitalists. If you are making an investment at any given time, doing a new business, if you're doing a seed round, you have an idea of what the market you want to hit is, but your short-term objectives with the funding that you have have to be a lot smaller, knowing that those objectives are moving in the direction of the eventual business you're trying to do. But they're going to be less well-formed. And then when we think about the next stage, it's, okay, what does it take to be a Series A? What does it take to be a Series B? When do you find that you have a product? When do you find that you have product market fit? Uh, when do you find that you have something that can scale? And that's ideally what we're trying to do at Mozilla as we think about diversification of our revenue. When you think about the decision to come to Mozilla, it's got such a, a storied past as it's intersected with the history of the internet, the history of all browsers. I'm curious as to why that was so attractive to you and the kind of corporate structure in terms of who your stakeholders are now. And I think this may be a very pivotal time in the world of development, and maybe it echoes with early internet days or maybe a passion that you had um, during early 2000s. One of the things to think about here and to focus on is the State of Mozilla Report, which we just published, and this is our 25th year in existence, so it's a good time to step back and take stock. And the important things that are talked about there are the things that have resonated throughout the history of Mozilla, which is, first of all, the importance of our mission. Our mission is really to ensure a free and open internet that puts people above profits. That resonates with me personally. I've been involved in a number of different nonprofits, the Independent Shakespeare Company here in Los Angeles, my temple, as well as the Center for Democracy and Technology in my days at uh, OpenX. Um, and this is important. This, the internet suffuses every aspect of our lives. And if we're going to continue to be a humanist and human-oriented society, we need to think about people first. And technology is something that's in service of the people. Um, the structure of Mozilla 
is what provides the incentives that allows us to pursue this mission. Uh, I'm a representative of the Mozilla Corporation. That's where I work. Um, we are a subsidiary of the Mozilla Foundation. Uh, and so we're owned by a nonprofit, 501c3. Um, we don't have shareholders other than this nonprofit. And that nonprofit is associated with the mission. And that allows us to really think about business as a tool for engaging in the mission. And so as a CFO, it's a different kind of calculus than you have when you are, you know, working for a Disney or an OpenX. You are not trying to maximize your operating income or EBITDA on a daily basis. What you're trying to do is make sure that you are engaging in businesses that are sustainable, that align with the mission of the company. And growth is important. But growth is in the service of being able to put more things into play that meet the mission. If you look at the State of Mozilla report, it talks a lot about how we're doing that. One of the things it talks about is the fact that we're on very firm financial footing right now. We have over a billion dollars of assets on our balance sheet, which has also been an interesting, interesting thing for me to think about as a CFO. Having been at a number of startups that didn't have this kind of resources, you end up thinking about things in a different way. Two, our revenue is strong. And three, we have been diversifying our revenue over time. And those are all good, important things that need to happen for the health of Mozilla and, dare I say it, the health of the internet overall, because a healthy Mozilla leads to a healthy internet. How do you think CFOs who don't have the long-term luxury of a billion-dollar balance sheet could perhaps replicate a more patient capital environment? And are there ways to communicate a vision more effectively, even under the pressure of the public markets, venture firms, or private equity groups? I think some of the tools end up being the same tools. We have a, a little bit of a luxury of having a, a balance sheet that's strong, but that doesn't, in my mind, release us from the responsibility of stewardship of our assets in a really smart way. And that's the same kind of stewardship that you would, in which you'd be engaging if you were working for a company that is not profitable and is working from a you know balance sheet that is essentially the entire balance sheet that you have before your next round of round of funding one of the most interesting challenges that i've had at mozilla has been that this company started out as a single product company we had a little bit of what you'd consider to be the resource curse if you're thinking about it from a geopolitical perspective. The very first thing that Mozilla did back when it was spun off is that we released the Firefox browser and it was an immediate hit from the very beginning. Having huge success at the very beginning is not a great way to build good habits as a company. And so as we are here sitting here in our 25th year, product diversification is one of the important things that we have to do. We've had to build new habits as a company. And one of the things that I always stress to my team is that our role inside the company is a navigator for the company. And we have the ability to see where we've been and look ahead to see where we're going. But we only have that if we have the right systems in place. Uh, Mozilla didn't build those systems at the very beginning of its uh, history because it didn't have to. Coming in now, the team has been focused over the past couple of years in putting the infrastructure in place to build that frame. And I think that's the interesting correspondence between systems and discipline and the storytelling and strategy implementation that you can build from that. The things that we had to do first are 
revamp our systems. After I came in, we implemented a new ERP. We put NetSuite in place. We've implemented a new forecasting system, uh, Pigment. Um, but these systems were put in place so that we can more easily record information, more easily change our chart of accounts and put in place an overlay of a product and project taxonomy so that we can put ourselves in a situation where we can actually start uh, tracking uh, products uh, on an individualized basis and do some of the work that I was talking about previously uh, in terms of thinking as a venture capitalist. Uh, we've had to come in and change the processes and psychology of the company where we have been building hooks into our other systems, uh, whether those be procurement systems, uh, whether those be HR systems, and get our partners inside the company to start recording what people are working on in ways that do not disrupt their flow. You can never ask people to fill out timesheets. You have to figure out ways to figure out how people are allocated to individual projects in ways that are organic and go with the flow of the business. But if you put all that together, then you create a robust environment where you can start really tracking your individual investments on a fairly granular basis, put together budgets for them, and then start applying the types of discipline that we talk about as stage gating our investment for different levels of investment and applying the discipline that I talked about previously. So this is not unique to, Mo to Mozilla, the type of thing that you have to do in any CFO environment. And the important thing here is taking the raw data that you have and our unique superpower as a finance organization or CFO is being able to take all that numerical data and turn that into a story. Uh, and that story is the story that then we can use in partnership with all of our other partners inside the company to say, what does what we've been doing mean? What should we be doing in the future? And it provides a frame for allocating capital in the right way. That's really helpful. I always uh, ask listeners to go back 30 seconds to re-listen to good advice, and that would be a great time for folks to do so. Something I'm really interested in talking about is how to effectively communicate with departments that you're less proficient in. One of my favorite conversations was with the former CFO of McLaren, talking to engineers who are excited to build the fastest car, having to debate and kind of negotiate what's feasible, what's on our roadmap. And, you know, many developers think as if we had unlimited time and money. I don't think that's horribly uncommon uh, in software development and, you know, product roadmaps. The 2024 conversations around implementing AI is going to include CFOs communicating with development. Seems, how do you think about how to discuss high-level stakeholder goals with high-performance teams that are not a part of the finance team? Yeah, a part of it is developing a culture of transparency and repetition. You know, go back to media and advertising. If you want anybody to pay attention to something or absorb a piece of information, they have to hear it three, four, five times, right? And so um, one important thing is consistency from our side. It's being transparent about our numbers, spending the time to, you know, we talk to the company every month to align on, okay, here's what's going on with our numbers. Here's what they mean. When people who are not financial people hear the word EBITDA, the first thing they do is laugh. Then you need to keep on repeating it, reminding people that this is a measure of profitability for the company. And it's important to think about. 
if you keep on repeating that and are diligent about it, and then you can start putting in the other messages and building the understanding of here's how this is changing over time. This is what we're seeing. Uh, another month comes and we get another report and the trends have changed. Why have the trends changed? What does this mean in terms of where we should be allocating our efforts and resources? It's that consistency um, and delivering that message over and over again that leads to more understanding in my experience. It's also not getting terribly technical about it. It's starting out with, here's the high level story. Here's what the big picture means. And then spending time unpeeling the onion, because if they get the first level understanding of that, then you start diving down into the next levels. And those become interesting if you realize what the context is. Got it. I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about what might be the most exciting things looking forward a bit, maybe in the next three to five years. I know we're spending time talking about the 25th anniversary and all that Mozilla has done for the internet and building communities. From your vantage point, is there a single thing or a trend that you're seeing maybe in artificial intelligence that gets you really excited to come to work every day? Yeah, AI is one of the most important things we can be focused on at Mozilla. And in a way, if you think back to the founding of Mozilla 25 years ago, to go back to the history again, but then we will flashcast into the future. The reason for Mozilla founding was because we wanted to make sure that the protocols that people used to browse the web were not going to be owned by a single party. We won't name the company, but that was the purpose of Mozilla. And that really is the raison d'etre of Firefox today, where uh, we are still a major browser with 350 million users. And because we are a major force that is backed by a nonprofit, it means that companies and people who are looking at web compatibility continue to work with the Mozilla protocols, and that helps to secure a free and open internet. Going forward today, AI is one of the most important things that are, is happening in the internet and in technology today. Some of the risks with AI are the same risks that we saw with browsing the internet 25 years ago. It's about companies having proprietary ownership over AI. We have different set of priorities in line with our manifesto. The things that we're focused on when we think about AI are openness of AI, accountability of AI, meaning that AI is simply a, a system that codifies what it learns in the first place and then gives you an answer. And it's really important to understand how it came up with that answer because the information that's codified in an LLM or AI is really the sum total of everything that's happened previously, which means that issues of discrimination, issues of just factual errors, if that those are encoded into the AI, that's what the AI is going to get back to you. The third thing is market access. People are, if you put people before profits, it means that people should be able to access AI, should be able to participate in the AI, and it should be owned by a couple of big giants. So we're focused on this in a lot of different ways. Inside Mozilla, one of the most exciting things that we've done recently is that we've acquired FakeSpot. FakeSpot is a company that uses AI to assess the quality of things that you'd be looking at to purchase on the internet. There's a lot of AI that's used to uh, create fake reviews, to push you to buy things that you shouldn't ought to buy because they are bad. FakeSpot uses AI against that kind of AI to be able to 
tell you if you're looking at a product on Amazon or someplace else, whether that's approved based on what it sees in the reviews. And it also can say, if this isn't something you ought to buy, here's an alternative that's from a trusted vendor. This is a company that uh, had a tremendous amount of growth since starting out. We acquired it last year and we are building it into a native capability of Firefox, as well as continuing to make it available as a plugin for other browsers. This is a great use of AI to counter AI. So we're doing that. We are working on a community-led basis inside the company with a number of initiatives. We had an open AI challenge last year where we brought together academics, small businesses that were uh, leveraging AI in interesting ways to talk about what is the future of open source AI and how can we work together and how can we push this. There's also a number of initiatives that we're doing internally, including uh, LlamaFile, which was uh, launched last year that have gotten a lot of buzz and are all moving in the direction of how do we make AI available for everybody. At the foundation level, we have launched Mozilla.ai, which is a company, separate company from us, but they're aiming to create core AI technology that is trustworthy, open source, and useful to people everywhere. We are continuing the activity that is spelled out by the Mozilla Manifesto in the AI space, and we think that it's vital for the future. And there are a lot of resources available for other CFOs to go to Mozilla and see that report, which we'll link in the show notes so that people can read it on their own time. And I, I'm wondering if you have any other advice there uh, where you consistently go to learn. I think most CFOs are looking for leadership in this space and how they can communicate with their stakeholders. But when you think of uh, what Mozilla is publishing, uh, where should folks go to learn more about you know Mozilla stances and where do you personally go to keep up to date with kind of latest trends outside of showing up at a place every day that's considering these topics and challenges? I have a pretty widely distributed way of looking at information, but it's a lot of it comes from different places on the internet. I subscribe to the information. I have a feed from Axios and you know, try to read all the major media and keep in mind what I'm doing. Gary Marcus was one of the folks that we had speak at our open AI challenge. He's got a great newsletter that I'm using to also take down the temperature a little bit on AI. Yeah. Uh, he does a really good job of talking about the fact that AI is not a sudden innovation that has come from nowhere. It actually is something that's been going on for a very long time. If you think about neural networks and different kinds of learning models, this is another iteration of that. And there's always, it's a tool that we can use for a lot of good, but we also need to keep in mind that it's a machine based on statistics. And I always like to think about it as from as somebody who's lived at, worked at Disney for 16 years, as going back to Fantasia and the Sorcerer's Apprentice, Mickey and the Broomsticks, AI is the broomsticks, and you got to watch those broomsticks carefully or they're going to get into some mischief. Um, the Hard Fork, Hard Fork podcast from the New York Times with Kevin Reese is also a really good, a good resource to be listening to to keep up with what's going on. Great. Thanks for sharing that. It's always interesting to hear where other people are getting information from, yeah, whether it's deep dives or recent news. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. One of my favorite questions to ask on the podcast, it can be completely unrelated to anything we've talked about, unrelated to finance or technology, or it can have something to do with what you're currently working on. But what do you feel today is underestimated in the world? I would say... I know this is funny in a, in a world of social media, but real connection and relationships 
I think are very undervalued today. You look at social media and there's an awful lot of performative social media and a lot of it, it's about broadcasting yourself. One of the things I tried to talk to my team about, and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning of um, 2023, is that fundamentally it's the relationships between us, our friends, and really our stakeholders inside Mozilla that makes things special. We're just a finance team. They're just a bunch of programmers who are doing things, but it's the way that we work together and the meaning that we put into those relationships and the investments that we make into them that are going to make us both successful and fulfilled in the work that we do. We all spend most of our time at work, particularly if you're in a job like ours. And if you're not able to bring a piece of authenticity into that and a little bit of yourself, you don't need to bring your whole self to work at all times. That's probably not a good idea, but bringing a significant piece of yourself and, and nurturing that is important. For me, one of the greatest joys of being at Mozilla is the relationships that I have with our executive team. The people that are my, my people lead, my legal lead, my marketing lead, product, my relationship with the CEO, Mitchell Baker. These are all relationships where we invest a lot in and thinking about the way that we interact allows us to have real conversations. And those real conversations both sustain you in a situation where there's a lot of ambiguity, as well as allowing you to make better decisions. So that's really undervalued in a world where as a CFO, you're always asked to think about numbers and you're always thinking about statistics and OKRs, KPIs. At the end of the day, it's just people working with each other. Where did you come to realize how important these aspects of work are and what are some of the things that you'd like other CFOs listening to the podcast to, to take away that they could adopt? Some of these frankly come from just my values as a person and the way that I was raised. I will say that there was one moment that I go back to earlier in my career where I realized that there was a choice to be made. And this was a period of time. I wasn't working as a CFO at the time. And I was sent on a mission to get some information from one of my stakeholders that I did know was going to be used as a way to report negatively on them. And that happened. And afterwards, my stakeholder called me on it. And he called me and said, I know where you got that information. And I know what you did with it. And I'm never going to trust you again. That for me was incredibly formative because you realize that life's not a prisoner's dilemma. It's not about maximizing your, your own return in any given situation. You're going to be working with these people. And I looked at myself and I said, I don't want to be that person. I want to come into every interaction that I have. And now it's interactions to CFO from a stance of honesty and transparency. And if that means that I disagree with you, and if that means that I'm going to have to tell people, look, here's what I'm seeing. I want to make sure that I'm going to share that with you so you know where I'm coming from and know what I'm going to do. And that was an incredibly formative moment that has really, in a lot of ways, charted out a course for me since then. It's just think about your relationships with people and think about the way you treat people. Great. That's a great answer. I appreciate you sharing that. Something we've been talking about here at Round recently is some magic wand scenarios. And again, it could be personal or related to Mozilla, but 
magic wand scenario, if you had a magic wand for 2024, it could do anything. What would you use it for? Anything at all in 2024. This is going to be a very complicated year. I'm excited for Mozilla. There's a lot of great things that we can do this year. We are primed to diversify our investment. We're primed to increase the quality of our operations. We planted a lot of seeds that I think are going to grow this year. And I want to make sure that we focus on those. The broader world is facing a lot of issues in 2024. And I am somewhat nervous about those. And so if I had a magic wand, uh, part of me would like say, let's find a way to stick to our knitting and not get too distracted by everything else that's going to go on. Excellent. I appreciate that as well. Eric, would you mind sharing where folks could get in contact either for the first time with Mozilla for folks who don't have Firefox or if they're interested in learning about the company or the foundation or the investments? How do you recommend they either get in touch with you or get in touch with the team? I'm sure you're always looking for top tier talent. What would be the best way for folks to get involved? I think the best place is search out the state of Mozilla report that we just published, and that'll take you to our website, but it'll also give you a really good overview of why we're doing what we, um, what the Mozilla mission is, why we're set up to do it successfully. And it'll take you through a lot of the really interesting things that we're doing on the foundation side, on the corporate side. You can get into what we're doing with Firefox. You can get into the efforts that we're making in AI, in privacy-preserving advertising. And there's an awful lot to learn there. Me personally, I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to find me. Reach out and say hi. Excellent. This has been another exciting episode of the Modern CFO Podcast. I hope we have an opportunity to do this conversation again in 2025 so we can look back on what I agree, I believe will be a pivotal year for, for a lot of different industries, technology, and perhaps society. So thank you, Eric, for your perspective. And I hope to speak again very soon. Thanks, Andrew. This has been a lot of fun.